Let's begin with prayer. Father God, thank you for your amazing grace, for the love you've given us, for the joy of the Lord, for the power of your mercy and grace, for how you have saved us and loved us. And as we come upon this week, that is, as we remind ourselves of who you are and what you've done and accomplished for us, Lord, we give you praise and thank you for your salvation to us. Guide and direct us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Lord Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane by the mob of soldiers and the officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. It was probably about two or three in the morning when he was arrested. The Lord Jesus was led away, taken to the house of Annas, the former high priest. Then he was taken to Caiaphas, the son-in-law to Annas, who was the official high priest. And the religious leaders had long waited for this moment where they could accuse Jesus and find a way to get him killed. But they knew they did not want to just kill him. They had to humiliate him. They had to discredit him. They had to utterly ruin him. Christ knew this day was coming. He was preparing for this moment. He was preparing for this day and this time. He warned the disciples that this would take place. After the Lord Jesus cast the demon out of the boy in Mark 9, and as he left that area, he took the disciples aside, and he said this in Mark 9, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of man, and they will kill him. And after he's killed, he will rise the third day. Later on, uh, as they're getting closer to Jerusalem, Jesus again declared, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. He knew why, what awaited him, and what would happen when he traveled to that city in Jerusalem. He saw the cross coming. A week before the Passover, he traveled to Bethany where he visited Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Mary took a very expensive perfume and anointed Jesus in preparing him for his death, even though she didn't know she was preparing him for death. <laughs> The next day, the Lord Jesus rode through the streets of Jerusalem where he was welcomed and praised. He would call this the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday because they laid the cloaks on the road as he walked, as he rode through the street into Jerusalem. And, of course, they waved the palm branches, declaring. And as he, as he rode into town, the people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The Lord Jesus was recognized briefly for he, who he is, the king. Like the transfiguration, people saw a glimpse of Christ. Now, the, however, Christ was not hidden. He had proved his character and his nature by how he lived, what he said, and who he blessed. His glory was seen by the relationship he had with his father, the beauty he was seen in how he loved. His nature was revealed by what he said. Some saw it. Many missed it. Who is this man? After the triumphal entry, the Lord Jesus went to the temple and cleansed it. He saw the bartering for animals. He saw the money changers exchanging money. This was all in front of the temple area where the only place a Gentile can pray. The noise was deafening. The options limited. And Christ saw the extortion that was going on and the greed. He saw there was no loving one another. He saw no means by which God would be exalted and God's love made known. He overturned the tables of the money changers. The coins scattered on the pavement, as you can hear it in your head. 
all those coins rolling down the street. He drove out the animals who were sold to be sacrificed. And those who were unwelcome came into the temple area and Jesus healed them. Christ has brought people to God. That is what he does. The blind, the lame found Christ and were blessed. The chief priests and the religious leaders were upset. In fact, the children were there and they were singing, Hosanna to the son of David, singing. How dare Jesus interrupt their business to minister? People who are broken and lost, come find your Savior, your Lord, your God. Because he loves you, do not hesitate to come to Christ. The Lord Jesus did not come to Jerusalem to be exalted in the manner that other men are exalted. No, he came to Jerusalem to be exalted in a different way, in a way that is contrary to the very word exalted. In the heart of humanity, people have a quiet disdain for those who are popular and successful. We covet what they have and want to take it from them. It's no different if we were to look at the character of Christ and hear what he said. You would know it was a great stuff what he said, but it was a hurt to hear it, what he said. Because it exposed our sins and our hearts for what they are. And the more powerful, the more disdain they had for Christ, the more hate they had. Sadly, Christ was hated. He's still hated. Every question and challenge, though, that Jesus faced the week of the Passover, the Passion Week, he answered brilliantly. He could not be thwarted or stopped. But he knew and he saw the cross was coming. He knew the day of his death was nigh. He saw the cross coming. I challenge you today, exalt the Lord Jesus. Give him praise. Exalt the Lord Jesus. Exalt him for he is Lord. Exalt him for he is worthy. Exalt him for he is God and his love lasts forever. His faithfulness never ends. His grace is poured out upon us. He is Christ the Lord. And may we worship him. And give him praise. Well, as the Passover meal ended with his disciples, he walked with them to the Mount of Olives to the garden called Gethsemane. It was past midnight, and he told his disciples to pray for him. His heart was heavy. In fact, in Mark 14, it says this, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. His heart was heavy. He saw the cross coming. Then he prayed, and this is what he prayed. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, To bear the cross proves to be the only way of triumphing over suffering. The only way for the cup to pass from Christ is for Christ to drink the cup. The cross is his triumph over suffering. The cross will bring an end to suffering. We know this because of what we read in Revelation it says, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Suffering has ended. Christ overcame suffering because he suffered. We overcome our suffering because Christ suffered. Our victory over suffering is the result of Christ having overcome suffering. Our suffering one day will end. Christ did suffer. 
After he was arrested in the garden, he was taken to Caiaphas's house. There the high priest convened a meeting with the Sanhedrin. Basically, this was the court of the high priest. They put him on trial because they, had, they didn't really have anything to charge him with, but simply they were just trying to find something to charge him with. So they put together a group of false witnesses to bring an accusation against Christ. And the religious leaders were doing this not because Christ did anything wrong or committed a crime or even violated the law. They did this because they needed to remove him. Jesus was a threat to the system. He was turning the world upside down. He was challenging the structure that humanity had built. This is what Christ will do. He will threaten your way of life. He will expose your sin. He will turn your world upside down. You will not be comfortable, but what he's doing doing for you and to you is showing you a more excellent way. His disruption in our lives is his calling us to know him and to love him. It is an invitation for us to come to him in repentance and forgiveness to find new life. Christ has to disrupt our lives or we will be led astray by our own false perception of our goodness. The Bible says in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but but in the end it leads to death. What life are you building? What materials are you using? What direction are you heading? Remember, God is the creator. He loves you. He created you. He knows the best way to live. Today, I want to look at three things that were torn on the day Jesus died. Number one, the high priest tore his robe. Let's look at Mark 14, start with verse verse 61. But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to, to be deserving of death. Then they began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. In July 2009, Parade Magazine ran an article entitled The Race for the Secret of the Universe. It focused on a Fermilab, a four-mile round particle accelerator that resides west of Chicago. The scientists gathered there Uh, are searching for the ever-elusive Higgs boson, also known as the God particle. Maybe you've heard of that in your reading. I don't know. I don't typically read a lot of physics stuff. Well, the article explains, says this, Physicists believe that this special subatomic particle allows all of the other particles in the universe to have mass and come together to form, well, basically everything that is around us. According to one Fermilab theorist, without so-called God particles, atoms would have no integrity, so there would be no chemical bonding, no stable structures, no liquids or solids, and of course, no physicists and no reporters. While it's certainly possible that God's built such a tiny particle in the deepest part of his creation, it isn't the God particle. The God particle that holds all things together is Christ. Ephesians 1 says Christ brings unity to all things in heaven and earth. Look what it says in Colossians 1. And Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Hebrews, 
who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged, all, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is what keeps things together. One thing we have as people are blind spots. That's why when you're married, your wife can really point out blind spots. <laughs> Thank you, dear. <laughs> Very important. We all have blind spots. We cannot know everything, and we cannot be aware of all the extenuating circumstances of our decisions. One of the biggest blind spots we have is our perception of control and controlling our environment. Another way of saying this is keeping the status quo. So I keep what I have. Keep the positions I have, the power that I have been given. The status quo is a structure we can build to find peace, but it is always unstable if it's not rooted in God and in Christ. We build our lives on Christ. But you will see so many people build their lives and create this comfort, create this life that they have built, and they'll do anything they can to keep it, you know, and fight like crazy. The power they have, the control they have. We're all kidding ourselves when we think that we, the things that we built by our minds and our imaginations and thinking God will, we will endure all time with this. When you look at uh, he, Daniel chapter 2, it says all the kingdoms of the earth will be blown away, gone forever. And the only thing remaining is the kingdom of God. That's it. It's the only thing remaining. When you look at the religious leaders and their hard attitude toward Christ, you see very clearly the human spirit in nature. It is a common tale told many times. This story, of, this event of what happened to Christ is very common, sadly. It's a quest to keep what power they thought they had. The Pharisees had trouble with Christ when he healed the paralytic because he says, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they asked. Then Jesus invited Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. And so, Matthew, come follow me. Matthew closes his books, leaves everything behind, follows Christ. He had this very lucrative tax business, making lots of money, and he leaves. And what does he do? He invites Jesus to his house to have this barbecue with all of his other tax collector buddies, and they're having a great time enjoying and visiting with Christ. And he said, I want to introduce you to Christ, says Matthew. And what do the Pharisees see? Tax collectors. He didn't see lives transformed. Then the Pharisees had trouble with Jesus because he did not fast when they did. The disciples went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, which violated the Pharisees' idea of the Sabbath. Then Christ healed on the Sabbath, which really pushed some of the Pharisees over the edge. And now they plotted with Herodians, how can we destroy Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath? How dare he do that? What did Jesus do that was so bad? He healed people. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry. He touched the leper. He cared for the lowly. He had all this power, and he never used it for the purpose of gaining earthly power. You give me that power, like build armies, take over the world. I mean, isn't that what it, everyone wants? I want to take over the world. What does Jesus do? He touches and blesses and heals the sick. 
Use all that power and blessing and strengthening other people. Common people. How dare you hang out with them? Then Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. And instead of praising God for what he's doing in Christ, they get more and more angry and more and more scared. And if you go to John 11, that's why I have this thing here. Yeah. Verse 45 says this. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And not one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. You're upset because he raised someone from the dead? He healed the sick? They lusted for what they had and did all they could to keep what they had. It's a very common tale. When Jesus was arrested, he was taken to Caiaphas' house and falsely accused. Finally, Caiaphas just said, okay, stop it, everyone. All you witnesses aren't even doing any good for me. Just asked him point blank, are you Christ, the son of the blessed? Christ then replies, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is what... This is what the high priest wanted to hear. This is all he needed to hear in his eyes. This was proof enough. Jesus is guilty. Blasphemy was punishable by death, most likely stoning. The most hideous blasphemy, of course, as you read the Torah, the Pentateuch, was teaching people to serve a false god. Jesus was not telling people to serve false gods, but rather he revealed rather clearly and truly who God is. But the high priest was not judging Christ based on what God said, but on the status quo and the threats, Jesus might take it away. He lost the picture of what Scripture was saying and saw his power instead. And he based life on that perception more so than on what God said. The the beautiful thing about contentment, you know, is you recognize and, and this is also in the uh, Tozer's book, uh, I believe, the first book we read, I forget the name of it, Pursuit of God, yeah. Knowing we own nothing, the blessed joy of knowing nothing, when you realize, I really own nothing, you know. I'm just a steward of what God has given me because I'm not going to take it with me. It's all going to stay behind. But when we use the blind spot of thinking, I own this, then we'll do anything we can to keep it. The high priest tore his robe, not out of sorrow, but out of pleasure of getting his way. Number one, the high priest fought for his position. His fighting was for people. Was He wasn't fighting for people, but himself, couched in the image and perception of his people. The high priest, hearing Christ, tore his clothes. The tearing of the clothes was a sign of mourning, especially when someone died. I know Job tore his clothes. David tore his clothes. It was an act of deep grief. It ruined the clothes you had. It demonstrated I can never wear these clothes again because these clothes remind me of that terrible news I received. And by even wearing them makes me remember, and they have to be replaced. Those clothes would only remind me of the grief I had. It was a terrible day to hear that news. When you tore those clothes, it was a terrible day. 
The high priest tore his clothes, not in sorrow, but in celebration, for he heard what he wanted to hear. The prophet Joel in Joel 2 said, Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Replace your, replace your heart for a new one that God will give you. Rent your heart. The high priest should have rent his heart, not his clothes. His grief was only skin deep. He did not exalt the Lord. He was happy to hear, not sorrowful, happy to hear what Jesus said, and he tore his clothes. Let's make sure we exalt the Lord. Number two, the soldiers divided Christ's garments. Let's take a look at Mark 15, verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. The religious leaders had convinced Pilate after they had condemned him. They convinced Pilate, the governor, to have Christ crucified. After Pilate released Christ to the soldiers for crucifixion, the soldiers first scourged him. And then mocked him. And the way they mocked him was rather telling. They dressed him in a purple robe, and then they placed on his head a crown of thorns. Then with a sarcasm and contempt, they pretended to bow before Jesus. Sneering, they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And then the soldiers struck him on the head and spat on him and laughed at him. The scourging was a terrible, brutal, brutal, and bloody. After the scourging, they put on that robe, and it congealed to the open wounds on his back, and then they ripped the robe off and put his own clothes back on. They were shaming him and humiliating him in every way possible. He was forced to walk the street called the Via Dolorosa, Dolorosa, carrying the cross, but he could not do it. So they assigned a man. Simon from Cyrene, who was forced to help Jesus carry that cross. They came to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Just like we put uh, uh, skulls on things that are poisonous or things that indicate death. This was a place of death. Jesus was crucified. It's interesting, in Mark 15, 24, it says, and they crucified him. They don't give a description. They don't go through the detail. They crucified. It was a very brutal thing to go through. And Jesus was nailed, his hands were nailed to the cross and his feet. The cross was used as a deterrent, put in a place where it was prominent, high up on a hill. So if you saw that, say, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. This was, the, the cross was an invention created in the mind of a man, of men, to create a way for man to die slowly and painfully. When you saw Christ on the cross, this did not look like a man who was exalted or glorified, did it? What you saw was everything you wanted to avoid. You did not want this to happen to you. The pain was excruciating, the humiliation defining, uh, and the brutality overwhelming. As Christ was placed on the cross and raised up for all to see, high on a hill, soldiers divided his clothes. Jesus was naked, another way to shame another human being. All our guilt he carried, all our shame he bore, all our sins he took. Now it says in Mark here that they divided his garments and cast lots to see who would take what, to take what, you know. In John, we read this in John 19. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. To each soldier apart, soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Now he did not tear that piece, the tunic. 
But they tore the garment to make four parts so they could equalize them, you know, equally among the soldiers. The clothes were divided up for the soldiers to take. Christ clearly had nothing of worldly possessions as he hung dying. And then we realize we don't either own anything. Number one, the soldiers sought to mock the humiliated. The soldiers, in many ways, were acting like the high priest in pleasure that he tore his robe and mocking the soldiers tore his garments. They did not keep, they did not, they did this to keep their position. What if one stood up and said, I'll defend this criminal? <laughs> well, most likely he would have been killed. Instead, they willingly played along. The most profound human experience was on display that day as Christ went to the cross, and it was our sin exposed for all the world to see. In the depth of our depravity, we celebrate brutality. There was no attempt to care or help, but ridicule and humiliate. What we find is that the human heart has no welcome sign for the Lord God. As the soldiers laughed while stealing his clothes, they only thought of what they could take. What is yours is mine, and I will take it. We kid ourselves when we say we're all people. We're good in nature. We're all good people. We kid ourselves. Rather, we, behi- we hide behind a thin veil of goodness, perceiving ourselves to be good. Like we see, heard in Romans chapter 7, there's nothing good that dwells in me. In stark contrast to what we think, there is a God who loves you who says, in me you can be good, and in my Son you can come to me. So exalt the Lord Jesus. Number three, the veil was torn. Let's look at verse 38 of Matthew 15. Then the, uh, let's start with verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Christ was crucified in the morning. By noon, darkness covered the land. The brightest part of the day was dark. The day itself mimicked the heart of man. By 3 p.m., Jesus' life was ebbing away, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of the hurt and the, the oppressed. Then he cried out, it is finished. And then finally he said, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. He then breathed his last and died. Typically, most people who were crucified would take up to 36 hours to die. That's the point of crucifixion. They didn't want you to die quick. Jesus died because of all the the scourging and the pain that he went through. And of course, all the sin that was put upon him. Christ, when he went to the cross, as darkness covered the land, sin seeped into his soul. He became me and you and all our sin. He became what we are, sinful, not because that he sinned, but because of what we've done. He became sin so we could become him, righteous and holy. That is why we say he's our substitute. That's the great doctrine of substitution. He became me so I could become him. He became me and took what I deserved so I could become him and receive what is rightfully his. Jesus breathed his last, and as he did, as he did, the veil in the temple was torn in two. This veil in the temple is what separated the holy place from the holy of holies. <clears throat> the holy of holies is where God lived. 
as they built the tabernacle in the, de- in the desert, when Moses was wondering, and when the people were running through the desert, God told them how to build his tabernacle. And he said, separate the holy place from the holy of holies and put a veil there. And, and then the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant, and God will sit on the mercy seat. And only once a year the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies and seek forgiveness of sins for the entire country. It was a sacred place and a dangerous place. Nobody could just walk in and say, hi, God, how you doing? (coughs) Couldn't do that. Very dangerous place. It was reserved for the high priest only once a year. God who is holy and was unapproachable for our sins make us unapproachable to God. We cannot get close to God because of our sin. Only in grace does God get close to us. Now, when Jesus died, the veil was torn. God was now approachable. Number one, God welcomes you. Because of Christ and his death, God now invites you to come into his presence, to love him, to sit on his lap, to cry out to him to enter his presence. You're now able to approach the Almighty God for Christ has made the way possible. The tearing of the clothes by the high priest and the dividing of the garments were used to take something, to take the life of Christ, to rejoice at the death of another human, to take away his dignity, to mock him, to find some perverse pleasure in humiliating him. But now God has the veil torn, not to take, but to give. Not to mock, but to invite. Not to hurt, but to heal, not to humiliate, but to raise up. In Psalm 22, we read this, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and, my, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O oh, my strength, hasten to help me. In our suffering, God is there. In our brokenness, Christ lifts our head. In our pain, the Father heals. In our sins, God forgives. The torn is veil is a statement of a fact and reality. God says, come unto me, and I will give you rest. The torn veil is an invitation to come unto Christ and receive what he so desires to give you. Come to him, and you'll find your rest, your hope, your peace, your salvation, your identity, your contentment. And exalt the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the cross, for Christ our Lord. He has died for us and risen again that we may live. We can't imagine, Lord, the depth and pain and sorrow and hurt that Christ went through. It's too overwhelming, Lord. I can't imagine. But all I can do is say praise you and thank you for what you've given.